Morning, everyone. All right, so um, Tim Keller uh, was recently invited to give a talk to the British Parliament um, at a prayer breakfast. So I actually would encourage you to Google that and listen to it. I think it's about 25 minutes long. It's really worth listening to. Um, if, if you had that platform, what would you say? And his topic was, what is the good that Christians, Christianity has done for Western society? Um, that's what he had to address in that context. So he told the story of a professor of history at a major American university. I actually don't know who this is. He didn't mention it. Um, but this professor apparently conducts a thought experiment with his students regularly. So the point of the thought experiment is to help those students see how Western society has developed over the last several hundred years with the massive influence of Christianity, okay? So here's what he says, the thought experiment. Imagine it's late at night. You're on a lonely street. You see a little old lady coming, walking with a purse filled with money and he said jewels. I don't know. That seems a little weird. But anyway, money's in the purse. And you know that you could take it. And you also know that three things are true in this thought experiment, in this hypothetical, you know, time and place and on this street at night. Okay? One, she couldn't resist you. Two, she wouldn't be able to identify you. Three, come on, go along with this for the sake of the point. In this particular time and place, it's not against the law to take her purse. Okay? So do you do it? That's what he asks his class. Yes or no, and why? So how do you expect almost all the, the students answer? Of course, they say, no, we wouldn't take it. So he then says, well, let me give you three reasons why you might not take that purse, and you tell me which one is you, okay? Which one identifies your reasoning, okay? So first, you don't do it because for you to take that money, you would be a weak person, a dishonorable person. So to pick on a weak person, you would actually be weak in character. So you wouldn't respect yourself enough if you were to do that. And no one would obviously respect you. So that's the first reason. Is that why? Second reason, you don't take it because you think about her. You imagine what it would be like for her to lose that money. You can think maybe of who, who's dependent on her. And then the third option would just be, you know, neither of the above, something else. Okay, other. Fill it in. All right? So almost 100% of the students pick A, B, or C. Oh, boy, I heard them all. B, okay, almost 100% pick B. And then he would begin to teach. So the first reason, and maybe, maybe the A is because we have some cultural diversity here, actually, okay? So A is a, <laughs> it can actually be a self-regarding ethic. So in an honor-shame culture, strength and honor is what matters, Okay, so the second reason is a, an others-regarding ethic, and the ultimate value is love. 
Okay, so the professor's aiming to make the point that as far as Christianity in Western society is concerned, Christianity has had such a profound influence that most of the students would answer B. The other regarding ethic is what's motivating them, guiding that decision. Okay? So he would say, you know, I, I'm not asking if you're a Christian in my class. I, even if you don't believe in God, it's beside the point that I'm making here. I want you to just see how profoundly Christianity has shaped Western society. You have an other regarding ethic. So where do you think the idea of human rights comes from? The idea that every human being has dignity and worth. It didn't come from the Enlightenment. It comes from much earlier, has Christian biblical roots, right? So, for instance, um, ancient societies, a lot of them accepted slavery as a normal thing. The first person that we know of in Western society who challenged slavery was Gregory the Bishop of Nyssa in 370. So in the Middle Ages, every human person has had has inalienable rights, okay, on the basis of the image of God. So our modern idea of universal benevolence, of helping the poor and, you know, abolishing slavery and all of that, it actually comes from Christian and biblical roots, okay? So that's the story that Keller told and how he unpacked some of it, and then he went on to say, you know, <laughs> Christianity needs to continue to have this kind of impact um, my question is, for bringing all of that up, will Christianity continue to have that kind of effect on Western society, that salt and light influence? So that kind of influence is big, right? It's macro, cultural level. But let's zero the focus down a little bit and say, will Christians in Delaware have that kind of influence on future Generations. How about Newcastle County? Do you care how Christians impact our state and our city and shape things for the next 10, 20, 30 years? That ought to be on our radar, actually. We are going to do that, whether we think about it or not. So before you just blow right by that, think about it. What is Christianity like in the Bible Belt? Okay, there are some good things, but also past generations of knowing the right answer but not really have, having it make much impact in your life has created so many churches in the South, and I know I'm painting with a broad brush, where the membership role is this big, and on Sunday there's this many people. Do you see? The image, the influence of Christianity is shaped by how we Christians actually live. So the way we live is going to impact what people think of Christ, their idea of Christianity, and that's going to have a good influence or it's not going to have a good influence. That's our responsibilities, brothers and sisters, our responsibility. So we've got to really care about this. So our subject this morning our passage is actually going to show us the way. So we're in the middle of the series called Come, Follow Me. It's a series on discipleship, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to make disciples of Jesus. 
So let's just do a quick little review here, especially if you're visiting, catch you up, or if you missed a week. We started out with who we are, okay? Disciples of Jesus. If you're a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus. A disciple is a learner and a follower. Jesus is the teacher, and he's the master, okay? Second week, we talked about the fact that Jesus is Lord, and as such, we must die. We're not the Lord, of our lives. Okay, if you want to follow Jesus, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus if you really want to live. You count the cost. So we renounce our claim on our lives to be Lord of our lives, deny our selfish, prideful impulses. We take up our cross and follow Jesus. So, second point Jesus is Lord, we must die. Okay? As we head to the third week, Jesus' purpose on planet Earth was to glorify God and to do good to us people. So when you follow Jesus, there's this beacon shining, kind of lighting the path, the glory of God and the good of others. That's the, the purpose, purpose. That's why we follow Jesus. So that's what we considered last week. So we looked at 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Right? And then, 1 Corinthians 10, 24, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Glory of God, good of others. We renounce our selfishness, and we live for the good of other people. Okay? So the fighter verses, did you, did you notice that that goes right along with uh, last week's passage? See if there's any nodding of heads. It was a longer one, so I know you might have let this one slide. Okay? If anybody's Anybody with me here? Okay, let's do it. William, wanna, you wanna, I'm going to put you on the spot. You want to stand up and give us the verses? <laughs> All right. We urge you, brothers. Awesome. Way to go, William. All right. That's good. So did you hear it said, but always do good to one another and to everyone. Okay? So that's just like 1 Corinthians 10, 32, 33 that we looked at last week. Okay? So the glory of God, the good of others, is the beacon, okay, that lights our way out of the darkness of selfishness as we follow in the footsteps of our Savior and Lord. Okay? So this morning... What does it look like to live for the good of all peoples? Okay, what's that look like? It looks like love. That's what it looks like. That's what it is. That is the path. That's how we live to the glory of God and the good of others. We love them. Okay, so this week, if we were to stick with that word picture, okay, the beacon lights the way. What are we after? The glory of God, the good of others. Love is the path. Okay. The beacon lights the way. The path we walk is the path of love. That's what disciples of Jesus do. They walk in love. So our passage this morning is chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. If you want to turn there in the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 900. 
So the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 is what we're going to look at this morning. So we'll read those two verses and dive in here. This is after Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Remember, Judas goes out to betray Jesus. And then in verse 34, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, the title of the sermon is Jesus' Law, What We Do. That might sound weird. I thought, I thought it was like law and gospel, and those are like different things. But do you know that the New Testament talks about the law of Christ? So, bear one another's burdens, and in so doing, you fulfill the law of Christ. Or you remember the you know, Christmas carol, O Holy Night? Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. So that's, you'll see that this is in keeping with those thoughts. His law is love, okay? So Jesus gives this commandment, and, and we say, wait a second, this isn't a new commandment. Love one another? That's as old as Leviticus 19, right? So what we need to do is start start by thinking a little bit about the law and love, okay? So that's the first point here in the outline, um, thinking about the law of God and loving our neighbors. So we could start with Jesus in, in Matthew 22. You remember he was asked by that expert in the law, what's the great commandment, greatest commandment, and how did Jesus respond? He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or hang all the law and the prophets. So if you read the Old Testament and you don't get love God, love your neighbor, you miss the point. Everything can be hung on those two commands. Okay? So the whole Old Testament is about The New Testament repeats the same thing. It reinforces the same thing. So Romans 13, you can see these up here. It'll be probably a little easier than um, turning back and forth. So Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Or Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? So over and over again, this is repeated as the summary of the Christian life in a sense. Okay? The whole Old Testament is about love God, love your neighbor. And in the New Testament, 
the law of love, here you go, love your neighbor as yourself, is central. So let's just pause for a second. Let me ask you this. Do you have positive or negative associations with the law? So if you have negative associations, you might want to listen here, okay? Or if you've, you've wrestled with whether or not, like, do we leave the Old Testament behind? And the, maybe if you feel like the Old Testament is filled with all these laws and then the New Testament's grace, okay? M- maybe, it's, maybe it's slightly different than how you've seen it, okay? So, so I'm reading uh, Psalm 119 in, in my devotions, and my good buddy Alec Motier, Old Testament scholar, hanging out with me. He, he actually passed away. He was 80-something and, and died a year or two ago. But anyway, he's got a great little thing on the Psalms. So listen to what he wrote. This struck me this week. Um, the quote should be up here, so maybe that'll help you follow along. So God made us in his own image. Our true life is to express that image. Anything else is a falling short of the ideal. Hold that thought in your mind and consider something else. God's law is what it is because he is what he is. This is the teaching of Leviticus 19, where all life, this is love your neighbor as yourself, where all life is assembled and brought under the appropriate commands of God. But each command in Leviticus 19 is enforced by the statement, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. In other words, I am what I am. The law of God is another way of expressing the image of God. So we, by creation, express his image in personal terms. The law expresses his image in terms of commandments. The law says, do this and you will be like him. Obedience to the law is our way of living according to our true nature. In his love, he imparts his life to us in order that we may do what he says. This is God's highest and best will for us. So often when we say we are seeking God's will, we actually mean where we should be or what we should do. But his will is, first and foremost, foremost, who we should be, what manner of persons. That is, people true to our real nature, those in whom the image of God is made visible. Recall Psalm 11996, your commandment is exceedingly wide. It is the place where I can enjoy true freedom, transcending human finitude, living according to what James calls the perfect law, the law of liberty, freedom. Perfect in that it is perfectly designed to match our true, real nature, bringing us liberty because obedience triggers the image of God in us so that we are what we were always meant to be. So we, there are some negative things that the Bible says about the law, okay? But by and large, the law is good. Sometimes we can have the wrong reaction to the law because of how it has been misused or because of stuff that it kicks up inside. So the law is like an image, like an outline, a reflection of who God is, his character. We are made in God's image. Therefore, to live according to our nature is to live according to the law. Maybe this will help kind of bring this a little more practical, a little clearer. So we think of ought, obligation. Well, we think of ought in terms of obligation most of the time, don't we? We ought to do this. 
it's an obligation, I'm supposed to do it, right? But there is also an ought of nature. Nature and design. Sugar ought to be sweet. Like if you, if you pick up white granular substance and it tastes like salt, you're like, ah, that's not, shouldn't be in the sugar container, whatever. Sugar ought to be sweet. You know you got the wrong thing. And salt ought to be salty, right? Or what happens when you see like this shiny apple, you know, in your little basket in your house, you just got it at the grocery store and you go, and it's mealy. Just throw it away. It's dry and nasty. An apple ought to be juicy and either tart or sweet, depending on the variety you purchased, right? Fish ought to swim in the water, okay? If you have pet fish in an aquarium at home and you stick a leash on your fish and try to take it for a walk, it's not going to go so well. A fish ought to be in the water. It's according to its design, right? Some of you might say, people living in the greater Philadelphia area ought to be Eagles fans. Okay? Come on, I'm contextualizing. Give me a little something for that. Okay, all right. Amen down here. That's good. Anything else is unnatural. Okay, all right. So seriously, do you see the point here? Human beings ought to be loving. Yes, obligation, but design. We're made in God's image. (coughs) If we are not loving, there is something wrong. We're made in God's image. God is love. Brady read from 1 John 3 and 4. Or 4, just 4. God is love. God is loving. If we're made in His image... We ought to be as well. So you can see where this is going, right? Jesus, we have fallen short of that glory. Okay? We've transgressed that law. There's something wrong and broken within us. The selfishness where we we live for ourselves rather than other people, that's unnatural, right? And that needs fixed. And that's why Jesus came. So the most human, human being to ever walk planet Earth is Jesus Christ, the God-man. He showed us what it looks like to be the image of God. He showed us what we ought to be like. So that's why you have the language in the passage that Brady read, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Or a chapter earlier in 1 John 3, 16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters, our spiritual family, right? Or one more, verse, one more chapter back in chapter 2, verse 6, Whoever says he abides in God ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. Okay, so the point is, there's something weird and wrong about Christians who are not loving. 
It's unnatural. Something's not right. It's not just an ought of obligation. It's an ought of design. In fact, the obligation is because of the design. So the, the law is the shadow, like the outline of the character of God, of what he's like. And then the God who made that shadow came down, and we saw the living law of God embodied. The Word made flesh. Jesus Christ, the love of God incarnate. Okay, so Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He's the will of God embodied. He's the law of God in motion, you could say. He always loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and his neighbor as himself when he was on planet Earth, right? So now that the substance of the law has come, we can expect his life and his teaching to be in line with the law, but we can also expect something new, okay? So he fulfilled the Old Testament law perfectly, right? He was righteous. We were not. He, he needs to be that perfect sacrifice. So we have failed. He succeeded, and he was the perfect sacrifice in our place, okay? But there's something new here, the newness to what Jesus commands. We'll look at it in, in 1334, okay? So, sorry, all that to say now we've made it to our passage. Um, John 13:34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So what's the newness? Love, love one another or love your neighbor is as old as Leviticus 19. But there's something new in here, right? What is it? Love one another just as I have loved you. Okay? So love your neighbor isn't new, but Jesus places neighbor love within a completely different framework, a different paradigm just as I have loved you. So God so loved the world that he gave his only son to save us from our sin and from hell and to give us eternal life. Jesus humbled himself. He served humanity. He had just, in John 13 at the beginning, washed the disciples' feet, right? Which is a picture of the ultimate service, kind of a foreshadowing of the ultimate service where he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross and served us by saving us, dying in our place. So this is the extent of his love. This is the nature of his love, the lengths to which he will go to demonstrate his love and deliver his love to us. So how wide and long and high and deep. Greater love has no one than this. And he laid down his life for his friends, right? So that's how he loved us. And we are to love one another as he loved us. Remember John 3.16, 1 John 3.16 again. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers just as he loved us. You see it? So the newness of the command to love one another is the as I have loved you part. It's, it's kind of ratcheted up from as yourself, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Now it's love as I've loved you. So, again, we're thinking about the law and love. There's nothing wrong with the law. It's good. 
but there's no power in the law to make us loving. There's no power in the law to change us because the law is kind of like out here, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. How how are you going to do that? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps? I mean, it's a good standard. It's a righteous standard, but it's an impossible standard, isn't it? Apart from the grace of God. Laws don't make people good. They don't make us loving. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is with our, our selfish hearts. Okay, when, when a selfish, hard heart meets a good law, it doesn't change the heart. Sometimes it even kicks up more rebellion, right? I, I think I've told this before, but there, there's this thing kind of like the Greenway, you know, that we have the trail here back in Chicago. It's called the Prairie Path. And there's this one spot on the Prairie Path, you know, near some homes in a residential area where there was a sign that said, you know, quiet zone from... I don't know, 10 p.m. to 7 a.m. or something like that. No yelling. So what do you think if a couple of teenagers comes down that path and it's 11.30? If that sign wasn't there, they probably would have just like kept on walking. That sign is there, what are they going to do? Start yelling, okay? So what's the problem? Is that a bad law? No, I mean, if you've got a baby sleeping or if you've got to get up early in the morning, like that's a good law. But laws will kick up what's in here. So laws can't change anyone, right? But there is really great power in love as I have loved you. Okay? This is the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, in a sense. Jesus didn't just die to be, become a good example to us, though he is that. He came to die for our failures to love, our disordered, twisted, perverted loves. And he rose again and sent his spirit to give us new hearts that want to follow him. So it's the new covenant in his blood. And what happens? The law is written not on a stone tablet outside of us, but the law is written on our hearts, right? internally. We're changed from the inside out. So you could think of it like this. Jesus, so so we've got to to get this cart, you know. We've got to love our neighbor. We've got to do these things. So you can say, love your neighbor as yourself. Like it's really hard to do whenever, you know, I've got a lot on my plate and this person's kind of a jerk. Like, They're annoying. My plate is full. Like, it's really hard to pull this cart, right? But what Jesus does is he says, love as I have loved you. Hold on a second. Let me hitch up this massive horse of the gospel of my love for you to your cart, and you hop on the horse, and let's go. So Jesus does the heavy lifting, right? And enables, we love because he first loved us. That's how we love like this, okay? So we can never separate the two. The the power of Jesus' love enabling us to love. If we separate those, then we're trying to keep the law in our own strength and we'll never do it. And if you think that you do, you know what will happen? You'll just become a self-righteous Pharisee. 
<laughs> and you'll look down on other people thinking that you're better than them, and it gets really ugly. So we can only love because he first loved us. His love melts our hard hearts, fills us up to overflowing so that we can then love on other people as he has loved us. So listen, I mean, this is how the Bible reasons. This is Paul writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, because I said so. Just do it. No, it's be kind to one another. Do, do you know who that one another person is? You know, like tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Do you know what she said to me? Do you know what he did to me? As God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God. We're, we're following Jesus here, right? Imitation as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Don't unhitch the horse from the cart. The horse is what drives the cart. So where do you get the power to forgive those who've wronged you? Some kind of stoic, pain don't hurt, denial. You know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, grit your teeth, I forgive you. Meanwhile, you're kind of like regularly smoldering with bitterness and resentment. No, you think of the parable of the unmerciful servant. And you say, I've been forgiven 10,000, like incalculable debt of sin. How can I choke my brother or sister over, you know, 100 denaro? That's not pennies, significant amount. But compared to infinite debt that I've been forgiven, I can extend that mercy and love to this other person. You see what I'm saying? So the commandment is new in the sense that there's new power and it is a new pattern. Love as I have loved you. Not just love your neighbor as yourself, but as Jesus has loved us. There's power in that command. Um, the quality, think about this, just something to maybe meditate on this afternoon. Think about the quality and the quantity of the love of God toward us in Christ. It's just perfect and infinite in both senses. You know, everything in this life is less than that. You know, we want fullness forever. Well, there you go. In Jesus, the love of God, fullness forever. How deep how wide, how vast, beyond all measure, right? So as we drink his love in, it creates love in us and enables us to walk in love in Jesus' footsteps, which means we really need to keep ourselves focused on the gospel, don't we, brothers and sisters? We can't lose sight of the gospel. Otherwise, we're unhitching the, the cart from the horse. We're going to get burned out really quickly. So this is why the New Testament speaks of the law of Christ, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Do you see how that's love your neighbor? Jesus is the ultimate burden bearer. And oh, did he... Be so, so sometimes we're like, oh, my plate's really heavy and I shrink back from helping someone or bearing a burden. But do you see, if you focus on, oh, how Jesus has borne my burdens. Lord, help me bear this additional weight with this brother or sister that's in need and you don't shrink back. You hop on the big Clydesdale, 
and you can bear a burden. So the law of Christ is the law of love as he has loved us and in the power of his love for us. So when this takes root in here, new creations in Christ, the old is gone, the selfishness, the distorted image of God. The new has come. We are being remade into the image of God, more in line with our design as image bearers. We ought to love one another. We begin to love as Jesus loved. We become known for it. When this takes root, we become known for it. So point number three, identification, verse 35. Love one another just as I've loved you. By this, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So identification by demonstration, by how we live. Who we are is demonstrated by how we love, okay? So I'm going to quote a couple times from this little book called The Mark of the Christian. How many of you know who Francis Schaeffer was? Okay, quite a number of hands. So he lived, I don't know, 19-teens to 1984-ish, something like that, and was a pastor, and, and then you know, he and his wife started this ministry in the Swiss Alps called Labrie, and he was kind of like a Christian philosopher and apologist giving a defense for the faith, and you know, they had all kinds of people come just live with them, almost like a hostel, you know, like a Christian hostel. People could stay for a short time or a long time, and, and anyway... Um, so he's written a bunch of stuff and whatever. This is really short. Um, recommend it to you. It's called The Mark of the Christian. And one of the things he says here is, in this verse here, 35, Jesus is giving the world permission to examine our lives. Jesus gives the world a right to judge us, in a sense. Okay, in a sense, I know. So here, let me quote Francis Schaeffer. In the midst of the world, in the midst of our present dying culture, Jesus is giving a right to the world. Upon his authority, he gives the world the right to judge whether you and I are born-again Christians on the basis of our observable love toward all Christians. That's pretty frightening. You might say, yeah, that is pretty frightening. In other words, if people come up to us and cast in our teeth the judgment that we are not Christians because we've not shown love toward other Christians, we must understand that they are only exercising a prerogative which Jesus gave them. And we must not get angry. If people say, you don't love other Christians, we must go home, get down on our knees, and ask God whether or not they are right. And if they are, then they have a right to have said what they said. He goes on to qualify. He's not saying that that necessarily means that, you know, they're right, because we all fail, right? But the point is, it's fair for them to take issue, and we need to look in. So what, brother, sister, what are you known for? This passage is getting all up in my kitchen. What, what am I known for? What are you known for? It's a sobering question, but it's a really good question, isn't it? We should pray and, 
just so drink in the love of God for us that we are increasingly loving and therefore known for our love. And, and see, where our selfishness starts to kind of shrink back or push back, we go back to two weeks ago. If you want to come after me, deny yourself. Deny that selfish impulse. Take up your cross and follow me. I like how the ESV Gospel Transformation Bible says it. Um, Anyway, yeah, so this confirming sign of our discipleship, love, is not a badge of our commitment to Jesus, as if we could kind of puff up our chest, oh, we're so loving. It's rather the beauty of Jesus' commitment to us. Discipleship is not a program for which we sign up. It is a whole new way of life for which we have been raised up. We're new people, right? Like, we're increasingly getting molded and transformed into the oughtness of our design. So here at Bethel, we've got three values, right? Everybody knows them. Gospel, community, mission. Do you see how they all come together right here? The gospel is the horse. The love of God in Christ is the horse that draws the cart. And we love one another in such a conspicuous way right? As Jesus has loved us, that's what should shape and form our community here, our relationships, our, our community groups, the way we interact. And then, do you see how that becomes strange and conspicuous and attractive to the world around us that's just driven by self-interest, right? Like, there's something different about those people. They'll know that we are Jesus' disciples by the way we love one another. We need the gospel if we're going to love one another like that, don't you? I need some help. I need power. But then it happens, at least, you know, imperfectly, but the right trajectory. And we become this salty, bright, radiant people. Gospel, community, mission. So what does this look like? It looks like a million things, obviously, right? I mean, <laughs> love God, love your neighbor, love as I've loved you. I mean, that's just like this big banner application, and there's a gazillion ways you could flesh that out. But Schaefer starts in a really surprising place in this little book, okay? He says the first thing it means is that we are willing to go and say we're sorry, It, it kind of like jolted me when I read that that's where he started. But it made sense because he's talking, her, you know, horizontal level, human level, but isn't it, it just makes sense because where do we start with God? Being honest with ourselves and our sin, I'm sorry. That's how you get reconciled in the first place. He loves us with this great love and comes to save us, and we, instead of running away or saying, I don't need that, we say, oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then things get really good. So our ability to love, walking in the path of love, begins with owning our failures to love. Whether it's the first time when you become a Christian or the 5,000th time when sin gets in the way, you know, in our relationships. But when that happens, reconciliation happens, grace happens, because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble 
who repent. You know what the second way Schaefer unpacks this? He says, forgiveness. <laughs> what is this love as I've loved you? What does that look like? I'm sorry. And then it means forgiveness. It's hard to say I'm sorry, isn't it? Without, especially without downplaying or justifying or explaining away our guilt. Like, so wait a second, what are you apologizing for? I think you just explained everything, you know, when you unpacked. So it may actually be harder to forgive when we've been sinned against than to say, I'm sorry. But it can happen, it must happen, and it can happen by the power of the gospel love of God in Christ. So I remember this time I was on a plane. This was years ago. And I was seated toward the front, um, and, but there was probably five rows ahead of me, something like that, and two or three rows ahead. There were two people, and man, getting on that flight, it was probably like packed, and I, it was an African-American man and a white woman, and something happened, and man, they just started going at each other. And it got ugly, like awkward ugly, like everybody's looking and trying not to look. And verbal exchange and huffs and puffs and all this stuff. And then finally things settle down and we take off. And you know what happened? I, I've never seen something like this in public. It's, it's, it's why it was so striking. That man, I think he was a Christian. And he stopped and he got that woman's attention and he apologized for the way. I, I can't even remember who catalyzed it. It might have been her fault. But I, whatever it was, he apologized to this woman. And I was close enough I could, I could hear it. And I think some of the way that he phrased things and so forth is like made it obvious that this guy was a Christian. And the reconciliation that happened just two rows up was so beautiful. I, I literally got tears in my eyes watching this happen. So as ugly as the, the fight was, I'm sorry, and there was forgiveness, and there was reconciliation. It was beautiful. And I knew, wait a second, is this guy a Christian? It's really interesting. So, is this happening? There's lots of million applications, but I'm sorry, and I forgive you. It's a good place to start. Is this happening? Is it happening in our hearts? Is it happening in our marriages? Your marriage? Is it happening in our homes? Is it happening, parents? Kids? Like one with another? In our friendships? In our community groups? In our relationships in the church? Isn't it easy to have a relationship with somebody and then somebody says something stupid? And you just start to kind of like pull back. And you know, you don't hate them. But you kind of never really go back there. <laughs> or it just kind of always sits there like a layer, you know, kind of on your heart. Are there some people you need to apologize to? 
for your failure to love, like maybe you need to do that right now. So we're preparing for this table right now. And you know what? If you go out and make a phone call, or if you go grab somebody and say, hey, can we go talk? That'd be awesome. That'd be beautiful. Not like, who is, I wonder what they were doing. You know, like, come on. This is really like God just grabbing us by the shoulders, looking us in the eye and saying, I, I, want, to, I want to make this beautiful. I want to make you beautiful. I want to, I want to shape you into the design I've intended. You ought to be loving as I've loved you. So let me tell you how wide and how long and how deep and how, which one did I leave out? The other one. And then in the fullness and the strength of that love, go love as I've loved you. So that's what was going on in Corinth, a bunch of mess, a bunch of fractions, fractions, factions, divisions, disregard, selfishness. And what did he say? Examine yourselves. You're not thinking about the body. You're thinking about yourself. You're not loving each other. As I've, 1 Corinthians 13 is two chapters later, (laughs) all about love, because there's so much friction in Corinth, okay? So, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, the body relationships, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So I hope that we're all willing to do this, right? I mean, if you're not willing to do this, can you honestly say that you want to follow Jesus? If you want to follow Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus and love as he's loved you. So if we are loving one another as Jesus has loved us, if we are living out the unity and harmony that Jesus prayed for and died for, then our community, changed by the gospel, will embody what Schaefer called, this is the last point, it's super brief, the final apologetic. So there was some similar language to John 13 and John 17, just a few chapters later. Listen to these verses, I'll quote him, and then I'm going to pray, and we can have the men come up, and we'll participate in the table together. So Jesus is praying for his disciples, not just the 12. He says, I do not ask for these only, just the 12 or 11, actually, Judas is left but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So map that in with chapter 13. And listen how Schaefer, one last time I'll quote him, brings it together. This passage always causes me to cringe. If as Christians we do not cringe, it seems to me we are not very sensitive or very honest because Jesus here gives us the final apologetic. What is the final apologetic? An apologetic as in like a reason to believe. 
that they may all be one so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In John 13, the point was that if an individual Christian does not show love toward, another, toward other true Christians, the world has a right to judge that he's not a Christian. Here, Jesus is stating something else, which is much more cutting, much more profound. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. Without true Christians loving one another, Christ says the world cannot be expected to listen, even when we give proper answers. The final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. Let's pray, and if the men who are going to serve communion can make their way forward. Oh God, you have every reason to reject and condemn and forsake us, but instead you poured out your great love on us. You demonstrate that love in that while we were still sinners, you sent Jesus to die for us. And we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we can be reconciled to you and we can be filled up with your love so that we can love others as you have loved us through Christ. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts by your Spirit where we need to be convicted of, of ways we have been unloving and failed to love. Would you convict us and lead us to repentance as we examine our hearts? And if we need to go and be reconciled to someone, help us to do that. And may you make us into a conspicuous people, a loving people that folks in Wilmington and Newcastle County will say, I don't know if I believe everything they say, but man, those people love each other. Maybe it is true. So Lord, meet with us now as we examine our hearts, as we eat and drink these tokens, these symbols, these reminders of your broken body on our behalf, your shed blood on our behalf. Give us your grace and mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. In his name we pray, amen.